Genuinely, this is uh, just one of the most beautiful communities that I've seen anywhere in, in America. I absolutely love what you guys are about. Uh, you, your leaders are my friends. Uh, we watch in admiration what you guys are doing. We nick most of your stuff and uh, sort of launch a second-rate version on the world. And um, we, we, we are just cheering you on in any way we can. If you're new here, these are good people. And this is a, a really good place. And it's brilliant to see the way that you're growing so fast. That's amazing, doubling the number on Alpha. Uh, I love Alpha. Uh, it's such a great way of, of, of growing and, 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 and understanding uh, faith. I love the people who come on Alpha and by the end, they've moved from maybe atheism to agnosticism. And they say, you don't have to kiss your brains goodbye to believe this stuff. And then, of course, others actually come to faith in Jesus, which is uh, wonderful. And I love that you're pushing into prayer and really um, seeking to go deeper, not just to sort of do loads of, I don't know, religious stuff, but actually to know Jesus. Um, you may be surprised to hear this, but I'm not really into prayer. I'm into Jesus, so I talk to him. You know, he talks to me, and they give it this religious word, prayer. Yeah, I'm not really into evangelism. In fact, I hate evangelism. Ugh. But I'm really into Jesus, so I, I get excited about him, and I end up talking about him to people. And they call it evangelism, but I'm not trying to do this religious thing. I'm just into Jesus, you know? I, you know, honestly, I'm not that into social justice. I'm massively selfish. <laughs> but I'm into Jesus, so I find myself picking a fight with his enemies, you know? <laughs> you, you understand? Just don't, don't do stuff because you're supposed to do it, but the vision is Jesus. And when you see him, you're going you're gonna to get obsessed because there's just no one who even begins to come close. And after 2,000 years, there's absolutely no question he's the most important, most influential, most magnetically attractive, most revolutionary, revolutionary, can't even say it, person who ever lived. And so as we start to focus on Jesus, it affects everything about everything. And then people start putting religious words around you. And you're like, me? Really? I just got into Jesus. Yeah? Okay. What are we going to be talking about? So, um, yeah, we are going to talk about prayer after that <laughs> scintillating introduction. I'll tell you what, though. First, I, I just wanted to give you like a quick global snapshot of some of the stuff. As I, I get to travel all around the world because it's one of the upsides of, uh, of being one of the leaders of a global movement. And um, I, I'm so excited by what I see happening all around the world. And I know it's really easy just to kind of get locked into your own neighborhood or your own city or even your own nation. And Jesus said 2,000 years ago, like, when you see the skies red at night, you know what the weather's going to do, but you don't understand the signs of the times. And so it's really important to see some of the great stuff that's happening around the world. Here's one thing just from the last week. I've been so moved by this photograph um, some of you will have seen it out there in social media. This is the teenage Swedish girl, Greta Thunberg, who skipped school 
This is August 2018, just over a year ago. This is her protesting on her own against climate change. This is Friday before last. And you know that on that day, 10 days ago, whatever it was, there were millions of kids, of children and teenagers who hooked off school in 150 countries around the world to protest about climate change. Now, I'm not going to get all political on you, even though I'd really quite like to get my Bible open and start to unpack that. (laughs) By the way, when people take things that are gospel issues and say, oh, that's taboo, that's party political, you can't talk about that, they're just plain wrong. See, our allegiance isn't to any one political system. Refuse to be right-wing or left-wing and follow Jesus and let people say whether you're right-wing or left-wing because no one party owns the truth. Jesus is the truth, and as you follow him, sometimes you'll be on the left, sometimes you'll be on the right, but you are a citizen of heaven, and when you say Jesus is Lord, that isn't a religious slogan, that was a political slogan, because they were going around saying Caesar is Lord, and the followers of Jesus, the first followers of Jesus said, no, you can throw me to the lions, but Caesar is not my boss. Jesus is Lord. It was a political, it was a revolutionary statement. And so that doesn't mean we disengage politically, but it does mean we have a higher allegiance. But I'm not going to talk about any of that. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said to Gerald, is it all right to talk about that? Because I'm traveling all around your great nation right now, and I find that I get into trouble. And He said, you're right, you're in Portland. So, um, (laughs) thanks. This does seem to suggest that there might be a new generation arising that's a little less cynical and a little more determined to stand up for what they believe in, which I think is an encouraging sign of the time. What if this isn't just some random movement? What if going from one person to millions of people is something the Spirit of God might be doing in our time? Do we have eyes to see and ears to hear that when a teenage girl from a place like Sweden sails across the Atlantic, arrives in New York City, turns up at the United Nations, and your president had to change his schedule to attend the United Nations? He was planning to boycott those meetings because of a teenage girl turning up. It's interesting, the relationship between power and authority, isn't it? As interesting, the prophetic uh, ways that God sometimes speaks. Um, let me just show you a few other little snapshots of, uh, of some of the things I'm seeing around the world. This next picture, this man, his name is Pastor Enoch Adaboye. He is based in Lagos, Nigeria. He is the leader of a denomination called, called uh, the Redeemed Christian Church of God. They started in Nigeria, and they're now all over the world. They are planting churches at a furious rate. Uh, they are seeing uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands come to know Jesus. Their prayer lives, you wouldn't even believe the way that these guys pray. And, you know, um, their Monday night prayer meeting, by the way, I'm thrilled to hear about your 7 a.m. and your new midday on Wednesdays. Get along to it. Their Monday night prayer meeting attracts more than a million people to it. That's quite a big prayer meeting, isn't it? I mean, it's interesting because you, you hadn't even heard of this guy and he's leading a far bigger movement than any of the supposedly famous Christian celebrities we think are really it. 
<laughs> Heaven's going to be so funny, you know. <laughs> but I bought all his books. He doesn't even have a jacuzzi up here. <laughs> Jesus is like, yeah, he cashed in too early. <laughs> They, 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 build, they thought they'd build, build themselves a church in, in Lagos there. And, and the sanctuary alone is two miles square. Huh. I mean, that's quite big. Apparently, this is absolutely the truth, if you're in, the, in their church building and you want to like, respond and go to the front to receive prayer, there's a bus service. There's a bus service to take you to the front. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's go uh, to Austria next. This is Salzburg in Austria. This is the cathedral there. It's the cathedral of Mozart and the Von Trapp family. One little girl in a pale pink coat, hardly or you know, the hills are alive. This is 8,000 Catholic young people gathered there saying, Come, Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and something beautiful is happening in the Catholic Church. This is unbelievably wonderful renewal that is spreading around the world. Millions upon millions of Catholic young people. Let's have the next picture. Uh, where are we going next? Oh, London. Good old London. Uh, so four years ago, we started a little thing with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, saying, what, what would it look like to gather people to pray in cathedrals? These massively beautiful ancient buildings that stand at the geographical and psychological heart of every single city in Europe. What if instead of them being tourist attractions, they became houses of prayer and places of pilgrimage once again? So we, we thought, let's try and gather people to pray in five cathedrals four years ago, and people just flocked to these cathedrals. We couldn't fit everyone inside, not to hear a speaker or a band, but to pray. I mean, it's amazing, because like, you know, prayer isn't particularly rock and roll, but there's a hunger that is growing. And so then that has grown and grown year on year. And this last May on Pentecost Sunday, I think we'd spread into more than 60 nations, cathedrals and warehouses and other venues. This is Trafalgar Square in London, was just packed out with thousands of people crying out to God. Is this everything we're asking for? No. But is it something? You'd better believe it. Because the, the Bible teaches and the history books are clear that every transformational movement of the Spirit of God throughout history began with a movement of prayer. And right now on our watch, in our time, we are seeing the biggest movement of prayer globally that has happened in any of our lifetimes. Far bigger than my little bit of it, the 24-7 prayer movement. There is a wave coming on. Uh, you know, I addressed a prayer meeting in Indonesia, which, by the way, is the largest Muslim nation on earth. There were three million people at the prayer meeting. And again, you've never heard of the leaders. There's something amazing going on all around the world. Here's another little shot. You'll have seen on the news that there are mass, mass protests in Hong Kong. Millions of people on the streets. It began, they were protesting about a, a change of the extradition laws from mainland China. But now it's an ongoing protest crying out for greater freedom. But what is really remarkable is it has been almost entirely non-violent. 
And at the heart of it is the Church of Jesus Christ. And so in the first weeks of these great protests, the song that was spontaneously rising up from these vast crowds was sing hallelujah to the Lord, sing hallelujah to the Lord. Hello? See, Karl Barth, the great Swiss theologian, says this, to clasp the hands together in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. It's a revolutionary thing to say, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, let your rule, let your reign, let your agenda, let your vision, let your priorities, let your policies be outworked in my school, my street, my family, my neighbourhood, my nation and the nations of the world's. I just wanted to give you a little snapshot. There's lots more I could have said, but God is on the move. You know, he's not insecure around atheists. He's not there going, pinch me, am I here? Like, he's okay. He's on the move. And he's on the move in this city. You are an evidence of that. People coming to know Jesus. People being released in leadership. Churches getting planted and a massive momentum building in Portland towards not just engagement with the poor, hallelujah, not just proclamation of the gospel, hallelujah, because Jesus Christ is the hope for this city, but a pushing into God's presence in prayer because that's the powerhouse for it all. And I know even in this church, there's a vision to grow that heart of prayer. And I just want to give you some really simple tools this evening to help you in your own personal prayer lives. Because otherwise, it's all this like big stuff of like, how do we, you know, clasp the hands of prayer and start a revolution? And you may just be thinking, yeah, but how do I do it? Like, when, I, when I sit down on the couch at home, get my Bible open, I, I don't find it easy. So I want to give you a really super simple four-step process that I use in my own prior life. I find it really, really helpful and I hope you'll find it helpful. But please don't take these four steps as like steps on a ladder to try and get to God. They're more like dance steps that bring an elegant form and a rhythm to your times of prayer. So let's uh, just look at Mark chapter 6 verses 30 to 34. Mark 6, 30 to 34. If you're able to do so, would you stand out of respect for the reading of God's word, please? Mark 6, 30 to 34. The apostles gathered round Jesus and they reported to him all they had done and taught. They'd been out on this big missions trip. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. (laughs) That's really funny if you think about it. Like, like, they like were really bad at sailing. Like, because like they're going in a straight line across the lake. These people are running around the edge and get there first. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> 
When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Amen. Please be seated. If you read the whole of Mark chapter 6, what you see is events are unfolding at a breathless and exhausting pace. Um, Jesus has sent out his disciples on this big missions trip, and then he gets the news when he's alone that his cousin John the Baptist has been beheaded by the ruler, by Herod. And For Jesus, this isn't just kind of a Bible story. This is his cousin. This is his kind of soulmate. This is the forerunner. This is the guy who baptized him. And and so he is massively shocked. And he's bereaved. He's grieving. He's reeling from the news. And he's probably asking questions like, is it me next? And what am I doing sending out my disciples to preach? Are they in danger? Is this responsible leadership? So Jesus is reeling from this bad news. And then just then, as he's reeling from all of that, the disciples come back to him, and they're all like, whoa, it's been amazing. And they've got all, they're totally insensitive, bad EQ. They're not like, I think Jesus might be a bit sad. It's like, Jesus, it says many were healed. Many have been set free. By the way, have you noticed this is exactly how life unfolds? In the movies, there's a narrative arc. We start happy. Then we get sad. Then we end up happy again. And this is a tragedy, in which case you go happy, sad, even sadder. (laughs) But actually, life comes at you all at once. The good, the bad, and the ugly is just an average day, right? And, and it's just exhausting and hard to even navigate. I, I remember, you know, my wife has been, has had, has had, she has a chronic illness. And in the early days when she very nearly died many times, I used to say, just putting my pants on in the morning is success and anything else is a bonus, you know. Life can often feel like that. Around that time, I was praying like a drunk man falling downstairs. I hardly even knew if it was blasphemy or prayer. I'd just think about my bank balance and say, oh, God. <laughs> you know? And so life comes at us like this. And Jesus is processing great um, tragedy and great victory. And he is so busy, we're told, that they don't even have time to eat. Isn't that wonderfully reassuring? Jesus messed up his work-life ratio, and he was perfect. So many people were coming and going, they didn't have a chance to eat. And it is into this swirl of activity that he almost aggressively says, let's get in a boat, let's get away from all of this, come away with me to a quiet place and get some rest. See, it's really easy with prayer to say, I will get my prayer life sorted out when life slows down a bit. Uh, I, I, you know, when my job is less stressful, when I've got over my heartbreak, uh, when, when my kids go to school or when my kids leave school. And, and we can always defer it, but it is in the midst of the struggle and the busyness and the trauma and the joy that Jesus says, hey, 
take a bit of time out with me. This is the invitation of God to us daily. Come away with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. It's why we use the vocabulary often a quiet time. It's from this verse. A little, maybe daily, retreat with God to get your Bible open and, and, and pray a little bit and see uh, what happens. And so um, I, I want us just to um, look at this uh, simple four-step process that helps me in my own uh, prayer life. And the first, uh, well, it, the acronym is P-R-A-Y. I said it was going to be simple. And it stands for pause, rejoice, ask, and yield. But I guess for you I have to say pause, <laughs> rejoice, ask, and yield. And if you're teaching this to kids, just swap that tricky word yield for yes. And um, I just want to explain you know, how this works in case you find this helpful in your own uh, life too. And, and one of the reasons I came up with this is um, in America and in the UK, we have been using this horrible acronym to teach children to pray for a whole generation. The acronym is ACTS. Just raise your hand if you were ever taught ACTS. Oh. So what was it? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication! A word that no human beings have used for a hundred years. We draw alongside a six-year-old and say, supplication is how you relate to God. Even Harry Potter doesn't talk about supplication. And I'm like, I'm going to make it my life's mission to come up with something so that in 50 years' time, no child in Christendom has to learn the word supplication. Pause. When you start out in prayer, it's a great idea just to stop for a moment. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. God is the friend of stillness. He speaks in a still, small voice. One journalist says, atheism is the religion of the busy. Before you start, stop. Put down your wish list for a bit and ask God to help you become aware of his presence. See, he is present all the time. He said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. But we aren't present to ourselves, let alone to God. Most of the time we're fragmented and scattered, strung out on dopamine. I live in a, a beautiful English city called Guildford and there's a, a street in the center of town that swoops down to a, a river. And one day I was walking down this and I suddenly heard this screaming and shouting and a dog barking and a strange metallic zinging noise. And as I was trying to work out what was going on, this greyhound came rushing out of a side street and, and it had its tail between its legs and it was running fast with its leash still on and the leash was attached to a metal chair that was not attached to anything else. And, and it was obviously scary for the dog. And I imagine that the owner of the dog had tied it carefully to the chair and gone into a cafe to order, order a drink. And, you know, they're, they're highly strung, right, greyhounds? And it must have jumped at something which made the chair jump, which is a scary thing to happen when a chair jumps. That is a scary thing. 
So the greyhound thought, and jumped a bit more. And then, the, and then the chair jumped more, which obviously and sensibly made the greyhound pounce, which made, I assume, the chair rise up and bite its butt, which made the dog start to run, which made people go, get the dog. And they're grabbing at the dog, so the dog is zigzagging in and out. And the chair is like rising up like a great hissing snake and biting his butt. And as far as I know, that greyhound is running still. What, what did the greyhound need to do? Huh, yeah. Stop. Sit. Be still. Pause. He makes me lie down in green pastures. <sighs> and everything comes back into perspective, right? Like most of us live most of our lives pursued by great herds of metal bistro chairs biting our butts and we're terrified we're driven it's irrational and into all of this Jesus comes and he says be still slow down stop and things come back into perspective so begin your prayer time with a little stillness. It might just be a minute. It might become your entire prayer time, and that's okay. Stillness and silence before God. I have a good friend called Brian who is visiting a lovely family in Northern Ireland, which obviously is a country that has been bitterly divided around sectarian religious violence. People have been killing each other in the name of religion, as you probably know. And it's got a lot better in recent years since a thing wonderfully called the Good Friday Agreement. And um, so Brian was visiting this family uh, who would traditionally have been seen as Protestants in the Catholic Protestant thing. And he came down to breakfast, a little bleary-eyed one morning, and they had one of those refrigerators that were covered with, like, coupons and pictures and stuff, you know, and... And he glanced at the fridge and he noticed there was a picture of Pope Benedict, the last pope, on the fridge. So he said to the woman of the house, that's amazing. She said, well, what's amazing? He said, that that photograph's amazing. She said, well, what's amazing about it? He said, well, I wouldn't expect you to have that on your fridge. She said, why on earth wouldn't I have it on my fridge? He said, well, you know. She said, I don't know. He said, do I need to spell it out for you? She said, yeah, I think you probably do. What's your problem with that photograph in my fridge? He said, well, someone like you wouldn't normally have that. She said, what are you talking about? He said, a picture of the Pope. She said, Brian, that's not the Pope. That's my mother. (laughs) The idiot. You know, sometimes in life, it's just a really good idea to stop and look carefully before you speak. How do you do that? Sit comfortably, maybe walk slowly. Take some deep breaths. If you're carrying stress in your body, very deliberately relax in those areas. Maybe use a simple little prayer phrase. If you have the gift of praying in tongues, you might do that. You might just say, thank you, Jesus. 
The Franciscans say, my God, am I all. You repeat, repeat a little phrase. It, it just helps you to switch off all those other thoughts and to focus in and be a bit more present. Some places are, in America are trying to ban this new book because I teach some of this stuff. And they seem to think that breathing well is new age. And I just think, honestly, if you need a Bible verse for breathing, you're in really deep trouble. Just medically, forget theology. <laughs> Next, rejoice. Rejoice. We're told in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You can't always rejoice in your circumstances, right? Sometimes life hurts like hell. But you can always rejoice in the Lord. We always expect God to airlift us out of our problems. We call that a miracle, but mostly he parachutes in and joins us in the midst of them. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me in the valley of the shadow of death. It's the presence of God. Rejoice in the Lord always. You can't always change your circumstances, but you can always change your relationship to your circumstances. And Jesus is actually the key to that. We're told to bring our petitions before God with a grateful heart. And so there's something about just making a little space to rejoice, to give thanks. I travel a fair bit. When our two sons were quite little, sometimes I'd get home, maybe I'd been away for two weeks, I'd come through the front door, I'd be tired, I'd put down my suitcase, I'd hear the two boys upstairs. They'd hear me come through the door and I'd be greeted after two weeks away with words like this, Dad, what's for dinner? <laughs> or Dad, tell my brother to share. And I would just go, hi. And then it would go silent, and they'd go, oh yeah, the old man's been away. And they'd come down, downstairs a little sheepishly, and they'd look up at me. Hi, Dad. How's your trip? Give me a little hug. What's for dinner? <laughs> I didn't mind them, they're Dad. But I just really liked them making the effort to come downstairs, look me in the face, and give me a hug first. Hello? He doesn't mind you making requests of him, but at least come downstairs and give him a hug. Look him in the face first. Maybe this thing's not all about you. Maybe the world doesn't revolve around your hormonal state. Or <laughs> Maybe it revolves around him. Rejoice. How do you do that? read a psalm. You say to me, I don't like some of the psalms. Good. Those are the ones you most need to read because if you agree with everything in the psalm, it's just an echo chamber of your own cultural preferences and this funny little bit of the world that you happen to live in right now and how you're feeling on any particular day. It's the very bits of the psalms that might offend you that might be the bits that might suggest that you're part of something 2,000 years, 3,000 years old and maybe 2 billion people strong in every tribe and tongue around the world. Enjoy those bits. Or listen to a worship song or count your blessings. Next. Now, by the way, I, I, I should say, look, if you're in an aeroplane and it's going down, you don't, don't think, oh, no, 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 I've got to pause for a minute <laughs> and, and listen to Chris Tomlin. <laughs> 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 he 
here I am to worship. <laughs> if that's your situation, I advise you just to go, help! I'm talking about, you know, when you're in, it's an intentional time of trying to grow in prayer. But the next step is the one you probably need least help with, and that is just ask God. This is where you know, come to him with some of your requests, the things you need him to do in your own life, that's called petition, the things you long for him to do in other people's lives, that's called intercession. Jesus said, um, ask anything in my name and I'll do it. Elsewhere, he says, the father loves to give good gifts to his kids. The world's full of problems, but I still buy my kids chocolate bars from time to time. Tell him what you want. Tell him what you need. It's become fashionable to sort of say, you know, in prayer, I am just changed, that I can become the answer to my own prayers. And I do kind of believe that, but I also believe in miracles. In the words of Hot Chocolate, the 80s soul band, I believe in miracles before they continue less helpfully since you came along, you sexy thing. <laughs> I mean, read the Bible, read the Gospels. How can you not believe? What vision do you have to have of God to think that he can't break into his creation? What could be more miraculous than just waking up in, the, in a body, in, in this planet, in this universe? Everything is a miracle. We just don't always understand everything. Learn to ask God. You know, um, I've got a good friend. He's a very successful businessman. He came to my wife and me one day and said, we'd love to take you guys on holiday with us. And he's the sort of guy that has, he's, he's just rich. He just has nicer holidays than us. So you don't check your schedule and go, we're free. And um, this holiday, I know some of you are going to start hating me right now, but uh, we, they, they, they rented out a, a catamaran, a dual-hulled yacht on the Adriatic Ocean just off the coast of Croatia. And they said, your family can have one hull and we'll have the other and we'll kind of meet in the middle for drinks and snacks. And, and we had this glorious week sailing around turquoise seas, dolphins. Every night we'd drop anchor in some secluded cove and there'd be a stunning sunset and our kids would be swimming in the sea. And one particular night we'd dropped anchor in a particularly beautiful lagoon and the sunset was particularly beautiful and we'd just hauled the kids out of the sea and wrapped them in snuggly towels and we were just sitting down to an idyllic dinner when a great cloud of mosquitoes rose up above us. I know some of you right now are thinking, good. <laughs> Thanks. But we, we weren't. We were thinking, bad. And... My friend James, who got saved in his 20s on the Alpha course in, in London and now owns a lot of companies, some of which you'd have heard of, he immediately and instinctively just rose, he lifted one hand up like Moses about to part the Red Sea and used the other one to start swatting his own face and began to pray. And this was his prayer, oh, Father God, I just ask you to take away these wretched mosquitoes now in the name of Jesus. You know, he's giving it all this. We rebuke the spirit of midginess, you know. 
and, and I look around the yacht and his wife and kids, my wife and kids, they've all got their hands up, eyes closed, nodding, agreeing with the prayer, but my eyes aren't closed. I'm not nodding because I am sitting there like Judas thinking this is a stupid prayer. <laughs> For three important reasons. The first reason it's a stupid prayer is theological. God is presumably big and busy and tied up with like uh, the Middle East and uh, sorting out Brexit and the White House. Yeah, I didn't think that would get as big a laugh. And he's probably too busy with big problems to worry about optimizing the alfresco dining arrangements of posh people on the Adriatic. The second objection was environmental. I guess mosquitoes are part of some finely tuned ecological system I could find out about on Wikipedia, but I can't be bothered. And as Christians, we're not immune from that, right? You know, when you get saved, you don't surrender your mosquito repellent. Like when you get baptized, they don't lift you out the water and you just keep floating up, liberated from the law of gravity. You know, we are part of these systems. And my third objection was actually just pastoral. My kids were participating in this stupid prayer. And so when, not if it didn't work, tiny seeds of doubt would be sown in their impressionable minds. They'd question what their old man was doing with his life and would grow up and obviously become Satanists. So, so this, and, then, and then James says, Amen, and everyone says, Amen, and just... The most annoying thing happened. I'm actually still quite furious about this. The split second, they all said amen. This gentle breeze arose and blew the mosquitoes away to some doubtless less prayerful yacht. <laughs> and I'm like, are you kidding me? My heart has been broken over stuff you haven't done and you do this? And to this day, I don't know whether that was actually a miracle or just a meteorological fluke masquerading as one. But this is the thing I do know, and I really do know it for sure. If you only ever pray about really big, gnarly problems, world issues that seem worthy of divine attention, you will only see very few miracles in your life. But if you learn to pray about tiny things, small things, daily things, and even inevitable things, you will live with greater Gratitude. You'll be thanking God for the things he does, the parking space he provides, the food he puts on the table, the sun that shone, and yes, even the mosquitoes that got blown away by some fluke of a wind. Finally, so ask God for stuff. But finally, yield to God. Or as I said, if you're teaching this to kids, just say yes to God. Romans 12 says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is the bit where we relinquish, we surrender, we say, do you know what? Even if you don't answer my prayers, you're God and I'm not. You're in charge around here, I'm not. What do you want me to do? What, what do you want me to say? Fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit. I'm sorry for all the rubbish in my life. What are you telling me? We yield, we surrender, to the Lord. The most important thing that can happen in the place of prayer is not that you say your prayer, but that you become your 
prayer. How do we live to the glory of God? By centering everything we are on his presence. By practicing his presence continually. How do we do that? By setting regular time aside in a disciplined way to retreat to a quiet place with him. Now, um, this kind of prayer, the yielding bit, is sometimes described as contemplative prayer. And I'm going to just walk you through that really simply. If you want the more complicated versions, John Mark can give you all of that. One person said that the way contemplative prayer works is this. Step one is me and God. Step two is God and me. Step three is only God. Let me walk you through that. Step one, me and God. This is meditation. This is where maybe we get a Bible verse open. We're working to focus and we're trying to think about God. It may be the start of a worship time and you're singing the song, but really you're thinking about what you had for breakfast, but you're trying to get into it. You're working, you're you're focusing, but it's, it's me and the lyric. It's me and the Bible verse. It's me and God. Meditation. Bible talks a lot about meditation. Step two is God and me. The center of gravity has shifted and you're starting to become more aware of God. You're getting into the song. The Bible verse is beginning to speak to you. You're becoming more aware of his presence. This is meditation becoming contemplation. Starting to get caught up in the love of God in a place beyond words. Step three is what I call communion. Meditation contemplation, communion. Now this doesn't always happen in a time of prayer, but it does happen sometimes. And many of you will know what I'm talking about. It's beautiful. There are some times where you move from God and me to only God. You stop even being aware of yourself or your surroundings because you are so caught up in the presence of God. Charles Wesley wrote about this. He talked about being lost in wonder, love and praise. It's a foretaste of heaven. Now you may say to me, that all sounds like, like kind of Yoda level prayer, Pete. But I want to tell you, you all do this all the time already. So here's an example. Every time you go to the movie theatre, it starts with me and the film. Then it moves to the film and me. And if it's a good, no, a great film, it becomes only the film. So me and the film. I've got my popcorn, I've got my Coke. There's a guy being noisy behind me. Someone idiot's got their phone on, but <clears throat> I paid a lot of dollars for this film. I'm going to get into this film. What's it about? Who's in it? You know, it's me and the film. And then as the film unfolds, if it's even half decent, you move to the film and me. I'm still aware that I'm in a movie theater. I'm occasionally having a slurp of my Coke, but I'm into it, right? It's, it's, the film is the main thing. And then if it's not just a good film, but a truly great film, you get so caught up in the movie that you lose your sense that you're in a movie theatre. You forget your popcorn. You forget your Coke. You forget that you're watching actors in any kind of a movie because it is more real to you than anything else. And those are the movies where we leave the theatre and say, that was a great movie. That was an incredible experience. It was cathartic. It spoke to me. Humans live for those moments. Those moments in art where we transcend ourselves. Sex. 
great moments of sporting euphoria. These are the moments that people long for more than any other, where we stop just worshipping at the throne of our own little lives and our own little realities and get caught up in something much bigger. This is the rumour of another life. This is a hint and a whisper that you were designed to worship, to be caught up in the very presence of God. It's a contemplative process. And so I'm going to finish by reading you a story. And uh, this is um, a story about a remarkable man by the name of Dominique Voyon. I first heard about Dominique uh, from a guy who helped us when 24-7 Prayer started. His name was Brennan Manning. And uh, he, he wrote a best-selling book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And he was an alcoholic, his great uh, uh, former monk. His great life message was about grace. And I had a pizza with him one day, and he, he, he taught me a great deal about this thing of yielding and about contemplative prayer, becoming the prayer. And uh, he also told me about the guy who had mentored him, whose name was Dominic Vion, because when Brennan was uh, part of a monastic community in San Remy, France, uh, the abbot was Dominic Vion. At the age of 54, Dominique was diagnosed with incurable cancer. And he went to the brothers, the monks, the friars in this monastery, and he asked their permission to leave and move to Paris. And I just want to read you the the little story about that because it gathers together everything I've been trying to say. Then we're just going to pray for one or two people. So Dominique, uh, in Paris, moved into an apartment in a slum district with only cold water, with incurable cancer, and got himself a job uh, as a night watchman in a factory. And he would come home at 8 a.m. after doing his shift every day, and he would sit in the park outside his apartment with all the, the people who were still hung over from the night before and the dirty old men and the homeless people, and he would just make friends with them. Dominique never criticized, scolded, or reprimanded them, writes Brennan. He laughed, he told stories, he shared his candy, he accepted these people just as they were. And from living so long out of the inner sanctuary, Dominique gave off a peace, a serene sense of self-possession, and a hospitality of heart that caused cynical young men and defeated old men to gravitate towards him like bacon towards eggs. His simple witness lay in accepting other people as they were without questions and allowing them to make themselves at home in his heart. Dominique was the most non-judgmental person I've ever known. He loved with the heart of Jesus Christ. And one day when the ragtag group of rejects finally asked Dominique to talk about himself, he gave them a thumbnail description of his life. And then he told them with quiet conviction that God loved them tenderly and stubbornly and that Jesus had come for rejects and outcasts just like them, just like us. His witness was credible because the word was enfleshed on his bones. Later, one old-timer said, The dirty jokes, the vulgar language, the leering at girls just stopped. 
One morning, Dominique failed to appear on his park bench, and the men grew concerned. A few hours later, he was found dead on the floor of his cold water flat. He had died in the obscurity of a Parisian slum. Dominique Voyome never tried to impress anybody. He never wondered if his life was useful or if his witness was meaningful. He never felt that he had to do something great for God, but he did keep a journal. It was found shortly after his death in the drawer of the nightstand by his bed, and his last entry is one of the most astonishing things I have ever read. So these, this now is the last words written in private by Dominique Voyam. He said this, All that is not the love of God has no meaning for me anymore. I can truthfully say that I have no interest in anything but the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. If God wants it to, my life will be useful through my word and my witness. If he wants it to, my life will bear fruit through my prayers and my sacrifices. But the usefulness of my life is his concern and not mine. And it would be indecent of me to worry about that. It's his last words. In Dominic Voyome, I saw the reality of a life lived entirely for God and for others. And so after an all-night prayer vigil by his friends, he was buried in an unadorned pine box in the backyard of the little brother's house in Saint Remy. A simple wooden cross over his grave bore the inscription, Dominic Voyome, a witness to Jesus Christ. That said it all. More than 7,000 people from across Europe came together for his funeral. Dominic Voyome didn't just say prayers. He somehow had become prayers. He had become the Eucharist. His whole life was consumed with the love of God. Years of faithfulness and daily devotions, holy habits had rewired his neural pathways. And so he had learned to pause and be still in the presence of God so that he now was the presence of God in a hectic world. He had learned to rejoice always, even dying of cancer in a slum, so that he brought hope and joy to people whose lives were broken. He had learned to ask the Father for all of his needs. And yet he came to a place where when his prayers weren't answered, he still trusted the love of the Father and became an answer to the prayers of others. And most of all, he had learned to yield his life, to say yes to God in such a way that through his sacrifice, others encountered the resurrection power and presence of Jesus Christ, 7,000 of them. And so this is the invitation of prayer, not just to do some religious deal, but to become the kind of person you were born to be, walking and talking with God in fellowship with him. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. 
We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit bridgetown.church slash give for more information. Thanks for listening.